is a fun week. Uh, we're on uh, we're on week three of the series I'm calling the greatest story ever told. Uh, some of you who are old enough may remember there was a movie by that name once upon a time, uh, but this is better than any movie. This story uh, that I that we are going through the story of the whole of Scripture. Uh, we're going to go through the whole Bible in three months. And uh, as we begin to do that here this morning, I want to just go through our goals for this study. Number one, uh, we want to get an overview of the whole Bible and how all of the parts of the Bible fit together. To look at the box top, if you will, of the puzzle. And see how see what the, what picture the whole Bible tells uh, what the whole Bible makes as it, they are all fit together. Uh, number two, to see how the whole Bible points to Jesus. Because the whole Bible is about one person. It's about Jesus. Now there are a lot of other people mentioned, but Jesus is the main character of the whole book. And I want to show you how that is true. Uh, and number three, and this is the most important goal that we have, because this is the goal we have for every time we open God's Word. That we want to know and to love Jesus more than we did when we started. So at the end of this, if we have done our job, then we will all know and love Jesus better and more than we did when we began. So today, we're skipping forward a bit in the book of Genesis. Genesis, if you're not familiar, is the very first book in your Bible. Okay, So after you get past the table of contents, the next thing you're going to find is the book of Genesis. Uh, and we're going to be in Genesis. We're going to cover uh, four chapters today. I'm not going to read every bit of them. Uh, but four chapters, Genesis 6-9, through 9, the story of Noah and the great flood. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me over to Genesis chapter 6. And, let, and as you make your way there, let me tell you why this story in particular is important. When you think about questions of life on a planet like ours, one of the biggest questions that there is to ask and that demands an answer from every person is this. If God is real, then why doesn't He put an end to evil? Why doesn't God just wipe out all of the evil from the world instead of allowing all of the evil that's, and suffering that evil people produce by their wicked ways? Now, I have a very short answer to that that's kind of snarky, and a, a longer answer that it will take longer than we have this morning to get into. The, the snarky answer is, what if God decided to eliminate all of the evil from the world, uh, starting with you, right? Um, because most people don't actually want all the evil eliminated from the world. They just want rid of the people that bother them, right? Um, like I say, it's a little snarky. But, um, but the reality is that this is a big, important question. One that de deserves a much longer, much more serious answer than I can give in just a few minutes. But a part of the answer is this. That God does judge evil now and He will judge evil and get rid of it entirely one day. And it's Genesis chapter 6-9 through nine that give us a big part of the biblical assurance that this is true. 
that God does judge evil now, and He will judge evil and get rid of it completely in the future. So if you found your way to Genesis 6, I want you to, to invite you to stand if you are able. We're just going to look at the eight verses that we'll read together, and then I'm going to pray for us. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are wicked people. We are people who are born... Uh, as sinners and who sin continually before You. Father, we thank You that through Christ we have found favor with You and that our sins are blotted out. Father, help us to understand these, these chapters, this story, and what it says about You, that we might know You, love You, obey You, and trust You better for having done so. And Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see wonderful things in Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, uh, if you look at the first seven verses, there's a lot I could say about them. A lot of people on reading the first seven verses uh, of of this uh, chapter immediately want to fall down a rabbit hole and spend a lot of time seeking more information about the about something that the Scriptures have purposely told us very little about, which identity of the creatures that are here called uh, with the untranslated Hebrew name Nephilim. Okay? Uh, so let me just give you, first of all, a word of pastoral encouragement. Do not Google this. Okay? Find up in some dark corners of the Internet and you will wonder how you got there. Okay? There's a lot of weird and stupid stuff that is out there if you look up Nephilim and what the Bible says about it because everybody has got an opinion, okay? But here's the thing. If that's what you focus on from these verses, you will have done something that is very foolish, which is missing the point. You will have missed the point of what this is. So let me just clarify quickly what this is about. Uh, the word Nephilim means fallen ones. Uh, I think the interpretation that makes the most sense of this is the idea that they were fallen angels, followers of the serpent, fallen angels who went to human women and corrupted the human race thereby. 
Um, I know that is some Star Wars material for some of you, right? You're thinking, I, I, I don't know about that. That seems a little far-fetched. Are you saying, Pastor, that in the early days of the created world that there were rosemary baby kind of things that grew, that grew up on the earth? That is what the Scripture seems to indicate, yes. Okay? Uh, that's what makes the most sense of Second Peter and Jude that both talk about it. Um, but remember this, that what is most important here is that identifying these creatures is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that within a few thousand years of humanity's uh, existence on the earth, what verses 5, 6, and 7 say come true. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. In other words, I made all these creatures. I knew what was going to happen, but nevertheless, watching it unfold is painful to watch. You ever been in a relationship with somebody and, and they are maybe they're a friend, maybe it's even a spouse at some point, and you can see based on the choices that they are making that they're going to drive the, their life over a cliff and you go, I see where this is going, and I'm saying everything I can to tell them to stop. And nevertheless, uh, in their car, there's only the accelerator and never the brake. Right? That's what, that's what these verses are talking about. That, it, that by a few millennia into the creation, Creation has become so thoroughly corrupted that God is like, I've got to do something different. I've got to take action. I've got to step in and bring an end to the evil on the earth. Uh, on top of that, God put a clock on how long He would wait to judge humanity. Do you see it? 120 years. Now, I think God is announcing here that, look, I'm a just God, and so there will be an end to how much evil human beings are permitted to do in my creation. And the end is 120 years from now. And at this point, you might be wondering, well, why wait? If everybody's evil, just get rid of them all, right? The answer is that God is not just, and this story is not just about God's justice about how God offers salvation to those who believe His Word. And that's, uh, that's where we see verse 8 and a lot of what follows. Okay, Verse 8, kind of that pivotal verse in chapter 6, but Noah found grace. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why that is, we're not specifically told. Uh, we're given hints in verse nine, uh, down in chapter one, uh, chapter uh, chapter seven, verse one, uh, tells us that Noah walked with God, that he was blameless, that he sought the Lord in his generation. In fact, he did so uniquely among all the people of the world at that time. Nobody else believed God's word or sought to follow Him. But I think that we're supposed to 
and that even in that evil world, which the Bible speaks of God having regretted, having made, that God came in grace, even into that world, and that God saved Noah and made him a righteous man. And Noah believed God's word to him about the judgment to come, and he further believed in the solution that God provided to escape from that coming judgment. How do I know? Well, because when God came to Noah and gave him instructions about how to receive his salvation, Noah obeyed the instructions he was given. And here's what, here's what God told Noah. He said, I want you to build a giant boat called the ark. And if, you, if you're a little light on your uh, biblical dimensions, okay, uh, let me give it to you in terms you understand. It's a boat 450 feet long, 150 feet wide, and 90 feet tall. It's a big boat. You can fit a football field and a half in it easily. Easily. It's huge. Uh, the, the, some guys down in Kentucky that have built of what the, of what the ark might have looked like. Um, you know, we don't know that it's, that it's precisely what it looked like, but presentation. I've been in it. It takes hours to walk through it. Hours. It's huge. And um, in addition to that, in addition to building this ark, he said, when it's built, uh, you're going to get in it. And you're going to get in it with your three sons and their wives and your own wife. And presumably, the whole family is going to help build this thing. It's, they've only got 120 years in which to do it. And he's to take with him pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of land-dwelling animal. Notice it's not every animal, because there are lots of animals that live in the water, right? But it's uh, every kind of, of bird and land-dwelling animal, including seven pairs of clean animals, one pair of every unclean animal, so that all of the land-dwelling animals and birds would be preserved. And after they're done, Noah is told, look, wait seven days. You're going to wait seven days. At which point a worldwide flood is going to fall on the earth. Now, you need to understand where, where Noah is living, right? Noah's living in an area close to modern-day Babylon. Anybody looked at a world map of recent? You seen any big lakes in there? Any oceans? Uh, right now, it looks, like a, it looks like a giant sandbox, okay? Back then, there was a lot more vegetation, but there was not any big bodies of water for hundreds of miles. And Noah's building this boat in the middle of essentially nowhere. 120 years building the boat. Wait seven more days after you get in the boat. And then the flood will fall. Anybody ever thought about that? Why seven more days? Bible say, but here's what I think. I think it was one last act of God's grace to a wicked world. 
According to Scripture, all the people of the world lived relatively close to one another in those days, and it would have been impossible for them as 120 years passed and Noah and his family continued building this giant boat in the middle of a field, not to, under, not to hear about the reason that they were doing it, right? I mean, how many of you all have read the stories about Florida Man? Right? Florida Man does this or what? You know, you've seen those on the internet, right? And there's some goofy stuff like Florida Man uh, catches an uh, alligator in a swimming pool, you know, or whatever, right? Um, but this is much wilder than this boat a long way from any water. Why? Because all so that all the people of the world at that time would know, look, God says there's a flood coming. I'm building a boat. We're going to get in it. Anybody want to go with? And no one does. And finally they go into the boat. And they wait seven more days. Seven more days. And then the rain starts to fall. But nobody else comes. We don't read any account of anybody you know, running up to Noah and being like, hey man, can I get in? We don't hear any account of that. No one else came, but God's judgment did, just as God, God promised that it would. And when God's judgment fell, it cleansed evil from the world for a little while. For a little while. I remember telling this story, uh, it may have been me or it may have been Karen that was telling the story to our kids when they were little, and one of the kids just had tears running down their face at the realization that every living thing, every land animal, every bird, every human outside this giant boat drowned in a flood on the whole earth and the waters covered the surface for a year. And we told that, you know, I started wondering um, as we watched the kids go, oh my gosh, so much death. I started wondering, how did it become a trend to put Noah's Ark in kids' nursery? Like, uh, you know, this is not a cute story about God saving a bunch of animals on a boat. It's a warning of God's judgment, right? When I suppose if you want to raise your kids to grow up to fear God's wrath, uh, this is a great thing to paint on their wall, right? Um, but, but this is a very serious event. I don't know how many people were eliminated in the flood, but more than a couple. I don't know how many animals and birds were wiped out in the flood, but a lot. The, the, the rain came down and the flood came up and the world of that time was completely destroyed. By the way, it's not mentioned, but I think it's at this time that the Garden of Eden also disappeared. And in a way... Uh, God put the whole earth back to its Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 state of formless and empty. But as we know, God didn't leave things that way. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, if you flip over there, 
it tells us that after the flood had destroyed the rest of humanity and all the rest of the birds and the land animals that weren't in the ark, it says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Again, this is language that's meant to remind us of Genesis 1 about God making the land appear. In this case, for the second time. And Noah and his family and these animals are the nucleus of a new creation. And when they emerge, God does something else. He makes a covenant with Noah and all the human beings that will descend from him. And you can see it in verse 8, beginning of verse 20, uh, down through uh, chapter 9, verse 17. And as you read God's word to Noah, uh, what you understand is that God's covenants were a new world, but one from which sin has not been completed. Who the sinners are, all the people that escaped the flood on the ark. And because of that, God promises, look, I'm never going to flood the earth again with water. He gives Noah and his sons the same blessing he gave to Adam and Eve, telling them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Same blessing. But he also tells them that your relationship with the animals has changed. Now the animals are going to be afraid of human beings, in part because humans are now permitted to eat them. And in addition to that, because humans are made in God's image, God commands capital punishment for those who murder their fellow humans and from every animal that takes a human life as well. And finally, God seals His covenant with humanity and His promise not to flood the earth again by creating the rainbow, giving us a reminder every time we see it. And it should remind us that God did eliminate evil with the flood. But he is also a gracious God who will not flood the earth again. Even if you get eight inches of rain in like eight hours, right? God is not going to flood the earth again. You can you might flood your house if you live close to the river, right? But he's not going to flood the whole earth again. But that new fresh creation did not last. If you keep reading the story in the rest of chapter nine, you see that Noah gets drunk, he's naked in his tent like a hillbilly on vacation. Uh, by the end of chapter 9, right? It's not great. And then on top of that, uh, you know, you see that what he's done is Noah has turned to alcohol instead of God for comfort in hard days. And worse, one of Noah's own sons dishonors his father when he finds him naked and drunk. Don't know exactly what happened there, but what we do know is this that though the amount of evil has diminished greatly and God has not yet given up on human beings, sin is still real and it's still present even within these people that God rescued from judgment. It hasn't been entirely eliminated, at least not yet. And that brings me to where this goes with Jesus. Right? A lot of you are going, well, Pastor, this is depressing so far. All you've talked about is the fact that God wiped everybody out except for Noah and his family. How does this have anything to say to us about Jesus? Let me tell you, just hang on. Because it has everything to do with Jesus. 
The story of Noah and the great flood is not just a story. It really happened just like the Bible says. But it's also a story that the Bible refers to over and over and over again. You may not know this, but Noah is mentioned outside of the book of Genesis, outside of the genealogy, which is named recorded eight times in other places. Um, on your outline, I've given you three of the scriptures to look at that refer to Noah. They aren't the only places, but they're three of the most significant, and they'll help us understand what Noah and Jesus have to do with one another. First, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself speaks about his return and the last days with reference to the days of Noah. He says that his coming will be as it was in the days of Noah, when people were marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking and living life as normal right up until the day that Noah went in the ark and the flood of God's judgment fell. What's his point? That his return will be just as Noah's warnings about the flood. And his coming will be just as surprising as the flood was in Noah's day right up until the rain fell. Secondly, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, Noah's story is retold and he's an example of those who believe in God, obtain the righteousness of God that comes through faith and who are then saved from God as a result. That's what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 is all about. The third passage, 2 Peter 3, connects these two things, both God's judgment on the wicked and the salvation that God offers from it together in one place. If you read it, what you'll discover is that Peter in his day, look, there are lots of people who are pointing at Christians and saying, y'all are so stupid. You believe in stuff that will never happen. In fact, they're saying things like this. Where is the promise of Jesus coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they have since the beginning of creation. Or to put it in modern terms, you stupid Christian, Jesus is not coming back. God hasn't judged anyone and there isn't a judgment coming. That's what they're saying. Anybody heard anything like that? You know what Peter's answer is? He says, oh really? You don't think God ever judges? You seem to have deliberately forgotten the flood. God does judge. And the flood proves it. And on top of that, in the same way that God is patient in the days of Noah, waiting to bring judgment so he could bring salvation to those whom he loved, God is being patient now. He is waiting for the last person who will be saved from his wrath to be saved. But once they are, then the fire of God's judgment will fall. The judgment to come, Peter says, will not be by water, but by a consuming fire. In fact, this is what he says. Let me quote him. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will burn up and be dissolved. And the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. The point is this. 
that God has judged in the future. I mean, He has judged in the past. He will judge in the future just as He promised that He would. And just as in the days of Noah, there was no escape for the wicked from the flood, so you can be sure there will not be any escape when the universe itself is destroyed by fire. At least there will be no escape for those who did not trust in the means of escape that God provided. And this is the most important way where Jesus and Noah are connected. God is still the same. He is still the same God. He still gives grace that saves. He still gives mercy that triumphs over judgment for every single person who believes His Word. And His Word makes a very similar promise to us that God made to the people of Noah's day. To escape from the flood, you had to believe the following things. You had to believe first that God had a righteous standard. You as a sinner didn't meet God's standard and that you deserve to die for your sins. And then you had to go to God and put your faith in the means of escape from His judgment, which was an implement made out of wood, which seems uniquely appropriate given that the first sin by our first parents was connected to a tree. Amen? In the same way, God tells us there's another judgment coming. That He has a righteous standard that we who are all sinners do not meet. And therefore we all deserve to be consumed by the fire of His judgment forever. But just as in those days, God has provided another implement of wood. In this case, a cross on which His Son, Jesus Christ, was hanged and put to death for our sins. Jesus paid the death penalty our sins deserve. And more than that, did not stay dead, but from the dead to give new life in a new world to all who become members of His family by faith. In other words, everyone who believes God's Word about Jesus and puts their trust in the means of escape from the judgment to come that God has said is coming will have not death, but eternal life. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life, then you become a member of God's family, which is far better than Noah's family. You become part of God's family. And you receive the new life that God Himself promised. You are put into union with Jesus, who is, which is a much more secure place than being in the ark. You're put into union with Jesus, the Son of God. And when you pass through death, you will emerge on the other side more alive than you have ever been in a completely new world, the home of righteousness. A place from which all traces of sin and mourning and pain and death and all the brokenness of the world we live in will have passed away completely. And that brings us to the end of the story. And how to know and love Jesus better for having understood and heard what God's Word has to say about these things. Doing that, there are two important steps to take. Number one, if you haven't yet, believe God's Word to you. Believe God's Word to you. 
Holy judgment comes. You will not escape from it. Unless you put your faith in the means of escape that God has made. Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave, the gospel message about what Jesus has done for us, is the only way to escape God's judgment. And God's judgment is coming just as just as certainly as the promise of the flood came. God's judgment in the future is coming. There is no time like the present. Let me, let me read you again Jesus' words. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage right up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, you're not going to get any warning. This is the warning. There's a judgment to come. It's a reminder that you don't have all day. Today is the day. Now is the time. Today, if you hear Jesus' voice speaking to your heart, don't harden your heart against the Word of God presented to you. Believe in Jesus and come to know Him and love Him and to know the joy that He brings into your life as He saves you forever and ever. That's step one. If you haven't done that, you will not escape the judgment. And worse, you will never know the joy of knowing Jesus. Because God is not simply a God who is just and who eliminates evil. He is a God who loves you. A God who sent His Son for you. A God who came to deal with the death penalty that His justice demands so that you might be in His family. That He might clear every barrier and hurdle to prevent you from being judged. He is a God who loves you and I don't want you to miss the joy and get the judgment. So don't choose that way. Believe in Jesus right now. But number two, if you're already a believer in Jesus, we are living in some sense in the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher about the, about the judgment and salvation of God and His generation. What about you? Because you have a calling, and I have a calling to proclaim the Gospel to all the lost and dying people around us. You know, sometimes I sit with folks, and, and, and we can kind of get in after the organ recital is done, you know, about all the operations we've had. You know, you had a hernia? Yep, had that one. You had gallbladder yet? Uh, yeah, I had that one. That was awful. You know, right? The whole organ recital. After that, we... Um, um, <laughs> I got that from Marty Davis, who I dearly love. Okay. Um, <laughs> but after we get into that, then you look around at, at the political scene and you start complaining about how bad the world is. And, and there are parts of it that have never been any better than they are today about being a human being on this earth. And there's a whole lot of things where we are deeply lost and, and confused. Amen? And so people who are looking for things to complain about can, can find a list. Right? 
Do you know what the solution to the world's problems are? Word of encouragement, they ain't arriving from Washington. They're in this book. They're the message of the Gospel of new life in Jesus Christ. And there are millions, hundreds of millions of people who are our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, our friends, all around us who are going to face God's judgment apart from hearing the Gospel come out our mouth. You feel me? And so if you know the joy of a relationship with Jesus and if you believe in the certainty of God's judgment, then we cannot stay quiet. We cannot say, well, they might make fun of me. They made fun of Noah and his family for 120 years. Surely you can put up with it for 120 minutes. Right? 120 years, they mocked Noah and he was proven right because God always keeps His word. I'm not going to live 120 years, I hope. I hope I go to glory way before that. But I want to go down shouting the name of Jesus and proclaiming Him to the lost people around me all over the world. Amen? If you know Jesus... Don't keep it a secret. Don't let the mockery of men keep you from proclaiming the message God has given. Let's pray. God, our Father, this is a serious story. It is as serious as a heart attack that You do judge justly and You do eliminate evil from the world. And one day, every trace of it, including the earth by which men were sustained who did evil on it, all of it will disappear with a roar and the elements themselves will be consumed by the heat of your judgment, as Peter says. But we who know you are looking forward to a new world, the home of righteousness, the place where all things are made right, and good, and put back better than they were in the beginning. We're looking forward to dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, I pray for those who don't know You yet that You would be knocking on the door of their heart with a loud banging that will not let loose of them until they open the door and let Jesus in. And Father, I pray for the rest of us who know You and who know the joy that I've talked about of what it means to walk with Jesus day by day and to be known and loved by the God of the universe and changed from the inside out. Father, I pray that we would not be silent in our generation as Noah was not silent in his, but that we would go to our grave shouting Your name to everyone who will listen and even to those who won't. Father, we pray for Your grace and Your mercy and Your help in carrying out the mission You've given us, making disciples of all nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.